we are back in. Man, whoa. There's always a lot going on. There's always. You know, this industry never lets us down. Burning. Burning it up. Screen Heat Miami. This is J.L. Martinez. Kevin Sharpley. And we are brought to you each and every week by... Kajik Multimedia. Cinevision. <laughs> Miami <laughs> Media and Film Market. And Kamakul. Yeah, so, and especially with the streamers, you know, that we been talking about the streamers since we started this podcast a lot of them had not dropped a lot of them are about to drop now yeah and we're seeing the results you know no one was absolutely sure what was going to happen right but when disney plus did their first drop Mm. 10 million subscribers i think that set the tone that was thanos just landing on planet (laughs) streaming (laughs) Landing hard. Collecting them rings. That's, yeah, that's what. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So everyone is waiting for HBO Max All right. to see what they're going to do. We'll call it springtime for streaming. Yeah, <laughs> we can call Max. it that. Quibi. Quibi, and we're going to talk about Quibi, but I did want to talk about HBO Max because we talked about HBO Max, I think, about the second podcast or the third one. You guys have to go back and listen to the second podcast. Yes. And we talked about what was going to be a big turn for HBO Max. What would be big enough to get that subscription base popping off? Mm. And I said that I felt rumblings of a friends reunion. And part of the reason for that is they pulled that IP from Netflix. And you're wondering why would they pull an IP that was doing so well? Mm-hmm. They were making so much money off of that IP. And I pinioned that hey, maybe a friends reunion is going to happen. Right. And lo and behold, a friends reunion is happening. And the rumblings, you can kind of feel them. You know, you could see a couple of the castmates kind of hanging out. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, we just went to dinner. Oh, nothing's going to happen. Nothing is going to really matriculate from this stuff. HBO Max is saying, we'll be there for you. <laughs> and they will. I think that this is going to be huge for HBO Max. A yeah. lot of people, you know, people of that particular generation when Friends came out oh, yeah. are going to tune in. But now a lot of people are familiar with right. the whole cast and you could see the cast you know Jennifer Aniston with the morning show and we're going to talk about the morning show which I sure. love you know but the, you know they're doing a lot of different things so there are, there's a lot of familiarity there but just think about this hmm. Netflix helped with HBO Max's push well and I think the other thing that Netflix contributed which I think other streamers are picking up on is this sort of wave of nostalgia right yeah so you know it started with the 80s you know very popular but now that we're in the 2020s I think that 90s nostalgia is gonna start to come into well it is yeah but you know now you're thinking the streamers because they're competing streamers you know they are well and I think obviously a similar thing we saw with Disney as they started to pull their IP out of Netflix as well yeah you know and, and I think HBO Max realized, oh, we need to do that. And like you said, it's a hard decision because even Disney as well was making money hand over fist just licensing content to yeah. Netflix. And, you know, same deal with, with, with Warner Media. And so now we're in a position where everyone has to put all their cards on the table and everybody is 
keeping their IP close to the vest yeah. and they're using it in the best possible manner to promote their own, uh, you know, OTT or streaming service. Yeah. And I think that this is going to be a bonanza for HBO Max. Bonanza. By the way, I don't want to forget uh, who our guest is today. Ah, we didn't even get into that. Who we got? We have puppet master Jim Hammond. Oh. And this was another great journey just to see how people matriculate and become who they are in the industry. Yeah. And this is a man who uh, worked with the Lion King. Wow. Know? And if anyone knows the Lion King. Talk about the, like the Broadway the show. The Broadway show. Right. One of the biggest Broadway shows in history. Yeah. A lot of puppetry involved in that show. A lot of puppetry. A lot of interaction with the audience. Yeah. And I went, to, you know, when I lived in New York, I was friends with um, another one of those friends of a friend situation uh, who was in the Lion King. So, you know, just imagine your front row and center. And for me, it was just ent- entirely different because you have this whole kind of back and forth interaction, you know, as they, you know, move into the crowd and become, you know, you actually become a part of the show at one moment. So, you know, you can understand why The Lion King became one of the biggest Broadway hits. Mm. And so just imagine if you're in that realm of puppetry. Yeah. And that's Jim's dream as a kid to get into puppetry at that top level. Yeah. At that top level. You know, you can only imagine. And you know, you have an understanding, you have Jim Henson. Right. Who people, you know, think of Jim Henson with, you know, Sesame Street and the Muppets and those, but his company does so many things and have been in so many different areas yeah. from huge feature films to television shows the Jim Henson company if you guys don't know about the Jim Henson company you know they do a lot of the animatronics and a lot of you know these um, non VFX right which is a big part of the industry and even indies remember Shona Tuckman talked about her film where they had a uh, what was like a, a pigeon Pear- uh, uh, was a, a pigeon. That's yeah, right. Yeah, that, yeah. That was a Jim Henson product. A Jim Henson, exactly. Yeah. I've, I've been to their lot in LA. It's cool. It used to be the Charlie Chaplin Studios, I think United Artists. Oh, yeah. And so I think when you drive in now, instead of Charlie, you see like Kermit the Frog dressed as Charlie. Oh, really? It's a really cool, cool little lot. I love it. it was yeah. So, much fun. so, you know, of course, you, you can feel that. Right. But in general, that's a, a, a segment of the industry that a lot of people don't know too much about. But it is a huge segment of and important segment of the industry. So, Oh, it is. And still, and even though a lot of things are going digital now and CGI, I think there is something for that particular art form that I hope it continues to be a part of the industry. Yeah, I think it's going to have to be. Obviously, like I said, live shows are always going to be, you know, like Julie Tamer's masterpiece, The Lion King. Yeah. Uh, I think that obviously there will be a place in terms of live entertainment for, for this art form. But I really hope that in content that it continues to have a presence. You but you, And you still have to. I mean, we talked about The Mandalorian. So they had the, the animatronic Baby Yoda. Right. And they have the CG Baby Yoda. That's so right. you have to measure both, you know, and see what's going to work best. And what I like. I Don't like, be cowards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to go back and listen to that Gregory Allen Howard podcast. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. We had a nice little visit. there. Little surprise visit. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I'm a practical person, uh. you know, and I do like this mix of, you know, animatronics and, you know, green screen. And because it gives a different kind of feel and a different kind of flavor. So this is a really, um, you know, amazing 
interview. Well, I can't Hattie. wait. Yeah. So well, uh, we'll, be, we'll get there soon, but uh, we have some other stuff going on before we make the jump. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. You wanted to talk about the morning show. I loved the morning show. I mean, from the start, you could really feel that it was going to be something different. Mm-hmm. And I have to give it up for both Jennifer Aniston, Aniston, who I think for me, this was one of her best performances. And I talked about it before. Right. You know, and uh, Reese Witherspoon. And she is really just on a tear as a producer and an actor, as a producer, as an actress. And, you know, this is there's a show coming up on Hulu uh, with her. I'm excited to see that show. But also, you know, her HBO show, along with Laura Dern and um, Zoe Kravitz which is just a tremendous show as well. She has really carved out a special place. Mm. And you talk about diversity, right? A special place for women, mm. but just a special a special place for storytelling, strong storytelling. So they're a dynamic team in the morning show and um certainly this program is a uh, a show for the times and that's on apple plus yeah so you know you all have to check that one out i would have to get apple plus and check it out <laughs> <laughs> yeah another one that you're gonna have to unless get apple into. wants to sponsor a trial subscription for screen heat miami for a proper review <laughs> <laughs> and that was great that was worth it just on that just on plug. that little drop plug yeah for apple uh so yeah so that's cool and then the gentleman loved it loved it loved it guy uh, Ritchie back in his element nice and we had intern andre talk a little bit about the gentleman but certainly uh i'm a charlie hoonan fan and i'm a charlie hoonan fan back from sons of anarchy which was my big introduction to him tommy flanagan who uh, was also from sons of anarchy right uh, did a voiceover for one of my projects he wanted you know he's one of my favorite actors tommy flanagan right but um to really see what charlie hoonan did in this in tandem with this is one of Hugh Grant's best performances yeah, for me Hugh. nice yeah. comeback for Hugh Grant a great comeback for Hugh Grant and uh, certainly Matthew McConaughey oh yeah once again <laughs> came strong on this one as he usually does so uh, certainly this is a return to course for Guy Ritchie so it's a it's a must see one recommendation Recommend it. Yes, sir. And then uh, before we make the jump, just wanted to give another recommendation for our local Miami Film Festival. Yes. Uh, Tickets are now on sale, and you can check out a wide plethora of local, national, and international features and content. They need to hire you. Yes. (laughs) Jay, if you're listening. Jay, our podcast for episodes ago, Mr. Jay LaPlante, the executive producer of the Miami Film. Film Festival festival had a lot to say about the festival but also about his story career so yeah definitely and check, then uh, check that out in the lead up there is also going to be a retrospective at the tower uh, which will be the home venue for marcus by the way uh, yes so your feature film debut yes. yeah. world premiere yeah we're gonna have very lucky to have uh both screens for the whole night so there'll be four four screens two times 6 45 p.m and 9 50 p.m on saturday evening march the 7th and it's gonna be a big show yeah at the tower theater literally a big show and the big show was in it <laughs> paul white great guy great actor i think you guys are gonna love his performance and he is a great guy i met him uh when he came here that's right our offices yeah so. and uh, hopefully with him and jr we're gonna set that up tee it up nicely for another podcast edition boom there you go so we're gonna boom into our next episode jim hammond 
Oh, yes. You all are in for a treat. And we will see you on the other side. Here we go. Screen Heat Miami. Wait, what about Miami? (laughs) (laughs) The Heat. Oh, the Heat? The Heat. That's what this is? You're the Heat. Oh, Kevin, you are the Heat. (laughs) (laughs) We can both be the Heat. Okay, we can. But we know who the the real Heat is. I'll put it to you that way. Okay. So here we are. Here we are. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for coming. This is a very exciting one. We are entering into a new realm. Do you know what realm that is? Uh, the realm of imagination, the realm of 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 anthropomorphic furry stuff, the realm of <laughs> of twenty foot tall skeletons. What realm do you want to enter? That's where I want to be, and that's where we are. We have for our listeners today one of the tops, not only in South Florida, I say the country but one of the tops in terms of puppeting. But that field is so expansive, and that's what we're going to get into as well. Exactly what this field is, what you do, Mr. Jim Hammond. Thank you so much for gracing us. Kevin, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat about where I've been and where we are now, right now and where we're going in the future. What you've done, how you've done it. (laughs) So let's go ahead and start this off. We always talk about having a journey on Screen Heat Miami. That's as important as understanding what you do, if not more important. So... Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from, Jim? So um, I've been in South Florida for, gosh, probably about 25-ish years right now. But I grew up in a small town in upstate New York called Hoosick Falls. And it sounds like a Dr. Seuss land, but no, Hoosick Falls. So you had no choice. I I had to do something creative. Uh Um, But it's a small cow town on the Vermont upstate New York border. And I was a quirky kid uh, in a in a town that did not normally understand what to do with quirky kids. Um, I uh, uh, I was addicted to television because it was an escape from this tiny little cow town. Um, I was addicted to the creativity of my imagination and crafting things out of stuff that I would find and turn it into either little shoebox dioramas or, or or puppets. I would take sticks and stones and leaves and turn them into little creatures and tell puppet shows with them. And this started really early on. Oh, so you were a child already knowing what you wanted to do. You know, um, I, I think oftentimes about... Uh, the folks in the universe who struggle to identify not only what they want to do, but realistically who they are. And I understand that struggle of identifying who you are, but the struggle of what I've wanted to do, I've known from square one. Um, I remember sitting in our front yard in Hoosick Falls and playing in the dirt and every kid has these tells these little stories with the with the toys they have around them or the objects they have around them or even if they're just playing with the giant box they're imagining a, a new universe they're imagining new stories 
um, quite often the school system's job is to beat that out of them so they become another cog in the whatever machine that they're going to enter. We as creatives are lucky because we hopefully still maintain that um, that childhood ability to tell the story. And I, my storytelling was all about objects and letting the objects tell the story and me breathing life into whether it was um, my sister's Barbie dolls uh, or, or the rot stones that I was, t- the, that I was talking about before, um, just telling little stories in the dirt in front of my house where the big rock was trying to help the little rocks. Um, it, it drew me in and I'm lucky to have been able to have a career in something that I wanted to do since I was three, four, five years old. Wow. We're definitely going to get to the career in just a minute, but I just want to talk about when that spark happened. Were you looking at television and you saw Sesame Street or Fraggle Rock or when did that just hit you? This is how I'm going to be able to tell my stories. This is the portal. So I think my my point of entry was, of of course, absolutely Jim Henson and Sesame Street, but um, Captain Kangaroo. Um, I don't know if you remember Captain Kangaroo, but Captain Kangaroo had these surreal moments when uh, ping pong balls would fall on him, and he had this moose puppet and this this um, uh, little bunny rabbit puppet. he was one um, one driver, one one adult connection that I felt that I had growing up. Another one, of course, was um, um, was Mister Rogers, and they came from two very different perspectives. They were they were adult males who, you know, looked straight into the camera and would tell you. It's okay to wander out into the universe. It's okay to uh, be yourself. It's okay to connect with strangers and and um, learn from them. And that's what I loved about those two shows. They were in a little bit different ways because with, with Captain Kangaroo, it had that playful, over-the-top goofball. But Mr. Rogers had such a sensitivity and such a connection when kids were scared. And a lot of my driving force, um, which we'll talk about in a bit, was uh, my fear of the unknown and my fear of death. My, uh, my Uncle Charlie, my Aunt Tony, other family members would take us to these Disney films. And whether it be Bambi or Dumbo or Lion King or whatever, Lion King was as I was an adult, but a lot of these um, Disney films were about loss, loss and death. And this sort of obsession with death, I think, started from my family taking me to Disney films. Where I found comfort was on these television shows where these adults were saying, and these puppets were saying, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You go into the big dark theater and, you know, Bambi's mom is dead. Um, But then at home, 
you're able to connect with these adults and these puppets to tell you, you know, it's going to be all right, Jim. It's going to be all right. So really, it was not one specific spark. It was a culmination of a couple of different things. Yeah, I, I um, it, it was. I, I, I distinctly remember a couple of things from my early, early childhood, playing, playing in the dirt with those, with those objects, those found objects, and doing these like found object puppet shows for myself. That was one. The other was looking at the ceiling. Um, when I was falling asleep in the middle of winter and in the middle of winter in, in upstate New York in Vermont there were no leaves on the trees and when the moonlight would come in you would see the branches moving back and forth which in some respects was very haunting but in other respects there was a play there was a, a conversation happening with it within them so again anthropomorphizing stuff was that first spark of creativity I didn't really realize that it could be a career um, I didn't even realize that I truly wanted to do it for the rest of my life um, until I s- until I started examining uh, uh, these folks like Jim Henson and realized, oh, wait a minute, you can do something that's going to make you happy forever. So you started to form your way of storytelling through you know, these rocks and sticks and dolls. And when do you feel like your first fully formed storytelling device happened uh me myself or or my connection with the well we can say you yourself but you know your first puppet your first you know fully actualized Uh, uh, creation let let me let me talk about one other one other piece of the equation and Hmm. um uh theatricality so I'm I'm more a live entertainment person. I've always loved media. I love television. I've dipped my toe into television a few times, uh, but most of my career has been in live entertainment. Um, that is directly drawn from the theatricality of the church. So the Roman Catholic Church, my it was is. Both sides of my family, very connected. I'm not as connected with the church right now um, as far as going every week, but I'm still very, very connected with, from from a historical standpoint, um, who I am and the theatricality I love. You experience that when you go to church. There's there's music, there's storytelling, there's there's costuming, there's you know over the top theatricality that, um, in its purest form, is beautiful. It can get very corrupted, sadly, incredibly corrupted. But when it's in its purest form, it can give a kid who just saw Bambi's mom die a little bit of inspiration. Uh, it's very, very similar to talking to Mr. Rogers on the television. Very similar to talking to Mr. Green Jeans and Captain Kangaroo on the television. So, um, where my my dad was the bookkeeper at our church, and my mom worked at this uh, uh, Catholic school with us as well, and. Um, 
uh, I was an altar boy, and fortunately, nothing bad happened. Uh, tragic, tragic situation. <laughs> Thank you for telling us that. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Um, but it was truly, um, it was actually my very, very first professional job. So I was seven, eight, nine years old, and I would get paid $1 to be the altar boy for funerals. And um, I was I was the kid who um, was kind of like the prop guy <laughs> um, for funerals, and I would bring out the incense, and I would uh, bring out all the props that are needed, the the large gold cross, and and I was an actor in many respects performing during this important ritual. Um, that sense of theatricality that you get in the church. Uh, I've been I've been living with that theatricality my entire life. So the merging of the puppets, um, the, the, the inanimate objects, that was one piece of it. The next piece of it was the influence coming from outside, some of the stuff that would scare me from Disney, some of the stuff on television that I felt, you know, deep in my heart, very, very warm connection. And then the church showing me, hey, you can be theatrical. You can be over the top. You can wear a big gold robe, and that's okay. You know, this kind of uh, cr- um, influenced me to become who I am today. Yeah, you know, and I can understand with the church because I come from a church background. My grandfather was a bishop. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the gospel music that people know come from the type of church that I was raised in. I wasn't necessarily raised in that part of the church with my grandfather's side because my family moved around a lot. But everyone from, you know, the Clark sisters to the Winans to the list goes on and on. Maddie Moss Clark was the musical director for my grandfather's um, choir. So, you know, these types of, you know, I'm going to say theatrics, but that emotion, that feeling, that you know, uh, performance is pervasively interwoven throughout the church historically. You know, the pomp and circumstance, and the, there's really a raw rawness to it that you know so many performers have taken that and have utilized that to you know popular careers everyone from you know Katy Perry to the list goes on and on so so it's the the the, the word that i think we're we're talking about is ritual oh yeah and, oh yeah and we are constantly looking for this ritual in life. So why are people so freaked out about birthdays? I get freaked out about birthdays. Um, Why do people get so freaked out about, you know, the ritual of Christmas or the ritual of Easter or the ritual of of St. Patrick's Day or or the ritual of of, um, New Year's Eve? There's a huge amount of emotion put into these uh, moments in time. And these moments in time uh, are beautifully reflected in the church, your experience in the church, my experience in the church. And that, to me, is part of the reason why, you know, I do the festivals I do, I work on um, projects I I do, because I, I want to help continue 
I want to help continue rituals for for families and older people and and myself. So if I can craft um, if I can craft a moment in time that incorporates spectacle, that incorporates theatricality, that incorporates puppetry, that incorporates emotion, that to me is why I'm here right now. So we have all of these elements. They've fused together. What was the turning moment that you said, let me jump into this? Was it middle school? Was it high school? So, um, right, let's see, right early middle school, late elementary school, early middle school, um, I started doing puppet shows in my backyard. Uh, and I think I was charging, I don't know, a nickel or a dime or something. I mean, it sounds very... Um, uh, I don't know, Courier and Ives or Norman Rockwell or, you know, old, old school. But um, uh, I do these little pup shows, uh, which would tell very terrible versions of like uh, Grimm's fairy tales, um, you know, which are challenging content to begin with. But but uh, I would tell those sort of stories. Um that's where I was beginning the experimentation. Where it really became solid was uh, my first professional job as a puppeteer. Um, I was 17 years old, uh, and I got hired at what is now a Six Flags amusement park. Uh, but at the time, it was an independent amusement park called The Great Escape. It used to be called Storytown in Lake George, New York. Um, and I remember going to, I think I was 16 and just about to turn 17. Um, one summer, my sister and I drove up to this amusement park and I just love the kitschiness and weirdness of like park shows. I was a little bit fear driven still, so I wouldn't get on all the roller coasters, but I'm a 16 year old kid who would sit in on, you know, these, these again, bad magic shows or mediocre puppet shows or whatever it is. And, um, I totally fell in love, was completely enamored with, uh, with these two, um, performers, um, on stage. So I drug my sister back to a show called Jungle Tales and Jungle Tales was a, uh, I think it opened with, um, with three gorillas in Sergeant Pepper's outfits. And then afterwards, it had a couple of, of women uh, doing marionettes and and just a couple of goofy puppets. And, and this was a, a puppet show geared, obviously, toward younger kids. But here I am, a 16-year-old geeky sort of theater kid um, sitting there. And by the third show... Of four shows. By the third show, my sister is like, "Come on, Jim, can we go ride on the rides?" I'm like, "Go, go, that's fine. I'm flirting with the with the folks up on stage." Um, and uh, I remember Brenda uh, coming out um, after the show, wearing pink bunny slippers, and she came out to the front of the stage and she said, "What's your story? Why are you here?" I'm like, "I don't know. I just want to do something like this." And we were talking and we hit it off. And um, was it like less than a month later, I was on that stage performing. And 
finished the end of that summer, 16 years old, the end of that summer, doing 21 shows a day. 21 shows a day. And we had the Jungle Tales show, and we had a magic show, and we had something called... um, uh, We had something called... Uh, Rainmaker, which was in the ghost town area where we had to pretend it was raining. So he had the kids jump up on stage and do a whole bunch of, you know, silly dances and play musical instruments. But my favorite show was, was Over the Petting Zoo. And this was a solo show called Sassy Sally. And Sassy Sally was a puppet and she was a well-endowed female chicken puppet in a red sequin gown. And of those 21 shows a day, almost 10 of them were just Sassy Sally. And this was intended as a five-minute improv show where you'd interact with the audience and you'd you'd chat it up and maybe make some stupid jokes um, and then go away. I fell in love with being Sassy Sally. So for the next four years, I would try to get as many of the Sassy Sally shows as I could. And it gave me a chance to combat my panic attacks that I would have. Um, Even in my older teen years, I would have these these moments where, Kevin, I'm looking at you right now. I could not look at my cousins in the eye because I got so nervous. What theater gave me, what puppetry gave me was the skill set to actually um, open up and be free of this nervousness. I still get nervous, I still get panicked, um, in particular when I have to do like a larger presentation for people. But even in this circumstance, I had this moment to say, no, Jim, just run away. It's fine. <laughs> yes, wow. you've done doing so many interviews, but just run away. Because because somewhere in that childhood, somewhere in that fear-driven universe, again, thank you, Disney. I love Disney, but thank you, Disney. Um, there was that fight or flight, and for me, it was consistently flight. And um, I... Uh, I found that becoming Sassy Sally for all those shows, making people do stupid human tricks, um, having folks compete in like one-legged races up and down the hill between between uh, Boot Hill and the Fudge Shop were like the, the locations on either side of, of the petting zoo. That was the first time that I'm like, oh man, this is it. This is it. And in the late 80s, I actually got paid pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's good. You know, do what you love and get paid. And get paid. And this is something because every time I've been around you, you have such an air of confidence. And you would not know in a million years that as a child growing up that you had those kind of struggles. Uh, again, you know, the parallels with you and I are very similar because I was very shy as a kid just deathly shy and when I moved into the modeling field you know that helped me to overcome a lot of that part of myself because it was being in front of people and then the acting and all of that allowed me to you know come more out of my shell so yeah the parallels continue so within um, that that's 
beautifully stated. Um, within the modeling situation is very similar to the puppet situation. Um, the reason, there are a million reasons I love puppetry, but one of the primary reasons I love puppetry is that it is a direct manifestation of the masks that we wander through life every day. When you are a model, you want to, I believe, bring in authenticity and, and a bit of you, but there's sort of this stoic, sexy uh, uh, mask that you have to wear. That's right. You know, I mean, there, there's there's... It's a part of you, but it's not you. Yeah, and that, in extension to that, the acting is the same thing. So it is, you know, that projection that there are those similarities there. And, you know, once you have that ability to step outside and really, you know, become more of what has been inside, then that allows you to, you know, have more confidence and you know, be able to have that kind of interaction. But uh, I want to go back to Sally. Okay. And I think you said you had four years. Yeah, but I think it was like four or four and a half years because I I just did a short amount of time that first year. And then I had four full years after that. Okay, four full years. And that brought me into college. So uh, uh, I would... um, uh, I think my last two years of high school and and about three years of college, I would go back and do the puppet shows and do the magic shows. This was for a, a company out of um, out of Dallas, Texas, called um, Paul Osborne Entertainment, and they did some quirky, weird, wonderful, and occasionally goofball shows. So, so at that point, did you know that it could become a career? And then I know that Jim Henson was a huge inspiration for you. So did you find Jim Henson then or did you find not just Jim Henson, but what he's all about? Because I do want to talk about that because, you know, I did not know the depth of this world. And this is my industry. Of course, everyone knows, you know. Jim Henson does more than just, I mean, he's passed, but his company does more than just puppets. I mean, they do a lot of different Animation. things. Yeah, the yeah. list goes on and on and on. So, you know, when did you begin the path towards bringing all of this together? Um, so, I don't recommend uh, what my mom said to me most of my childhood, but my mom most of my childhood said... Um, Jim, I love your ambition. Jim, I love your your dream, but but Jim, you have delusions of grandeur, and I would not recommend that because for a lot of kids, that's going to shut them down. And my mom meant it in the most protective way. Right. She meant it in the most um, amazing, loving way. But how I took it was, oh, you don't think I can do this? Just watch me. And I've struggled, you know. I've, I've definitely every artist struggles. You've got you've got the 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 rich days and the not so rich days. You've got the creative uh, milestones and the creative disasters. I think artists need that though. That they, you, they, failure they, is a, they they draw from helpful. that struggle. Failure so, is helpful. A lot, yeah. Because if if you get it, 
really early on. There are some that can soar and do brilliantly, but um, a lot of them uh, need that struggle to understand how... um, need that struggle to understand how amazing it is when it works. Wow. We have so many sound bites in this one <laughs> interview so far. So, um, so yeah, so the thrown in that mix is also, you, you know, your mother in your unconscious mind, you know, seeping in there every so often. Uh, how did you pull it all together? How did you then, you know, draw your inspiration from, you know, Henson and, you know, your past experiences and yeah. How was it after college? Yeah. Um, so after college, I toured with a, a puppet company called Das Puppenspiel Puppet Theater, which was a um, uh, some German creatives uh, founded this puppet theater. I think it was. I said Jamestown. It was very close to Jamestown, New York. Um, I feel like it was Dunkirk, New York. Um, but a small town on Lake Erie. And they they created this beautiful touring um, company that, that the artistry was so... Uh, so delicate and so emotional. And working with them... Um, I started as an intern my, my, my last year and they illustrated to me that, yeah, you know what, if you want to create a little touring company, this is how you can do it. You know, I saw touring companies come to my elementary school and even my high school, um, and, but it wasn't until I actually worked with them that I'm like, okay, yeah, 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 this, this can work. Um, I, while I was interning with them, my last year my pseudo thesis project um, because I had like three or four of them was to do a hair metal version of the Punch and Judy show for college students in the big college campus center and and brought in a bunch of actors. I actually just connected with them on Facebook, and one of them joked, "Oh, we got to get the band back together. Let's let's do this." <laughs> but it was like this. It was like this. Um, all the music in it was like uh, '80s Guns N' Roses and and Warrant, and it was just some great and some terrible hair metal bands. And um, I think Alice Cooper. We had uh, we're not going to take it. I think we. We closed the show with that. Um, B. Schneider. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, he looks like a puppet. He <laughs> at that time. <laughs> for those who can't see me, I do look like a puppet. I look like a like an aging uh, 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 rock and roll guy. I get well, no, mistaken. I mean, you, you know, you look great. Like you, you know, you dropped. Um, I don't know how many pounds, but we can get into that too. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah, get into we, that. We, but we yeah, can... yeah, you look great. But thanks. Uh, Please continue. Uh, so, so we created this show, but it was like a reboot of like Punch and Judy is somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, 370 years old. And you're familiar with Punch uh, and yeah, Judy? Yeah, of course. Show. Okay. For those who aren't familiar with Punch and Judy, you know, he was the first anti-establishment hero. He was SpongeBob before SpongeBob. He was Bugs Bunny before Bugs Bunny. He was the one who broke all the rules by, by throwing his baby out the window by pushing his wife out the window by pushing the policeman out the window by pushing 
royalty out the window by pushing um, the hangman who was about to kill him out the window and ultimately pushing out death himself or the king himself, depending on on what version of it, where he would win by breaking the the bonds of that were that were pushed on him. And there are stories that that I was researching in in, in school because I wasn't as familiar with them um, of of him of puppeteers directly going after. Uh, folks who were running villages or royalty or or whatever the monarch was at the time where that monarch was so upset that they would literally shoot at or take their knives to the puppet uh, because the puppet was saying stuff that these poor masses wanted to say but it would be off with their head um, so, so at the time, hair metal band, and at the time, uh, uh, the pushback um, on uh, censorship that was happening uh, against a lot of the the the, the metal bands um, was was incredibly potent and part of the political scheme happening at the time. So, to me, I thought it was a natural combination of, you know, this metal. Music that that was influencing me, and and this ancient anti-establishment hero, and what's crazy now thinking about it, which I never really thought about it, um, D. Snyder spoke in front of Congress about this back in the eighties. Who else spoke in front of Congress about this? I don't know. <laughs> Wasn't Captain Kangaroo? Oh, that's right. Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. That's so right. Mr. Rogers is sitting in the same seat as D. Snyder. Twisted sister, we're not going to take it. And they're standing side by side to say creatives should be allowed to do what creatives do. And yes, we want to protect the children. Yes, we want to protect society. But the reality is society moves forward through arts, creative, film, television, music. That is what makes us different from all the other animals out here. So this is... We're not full circle yet. We're going to get there. But this is a full circle. So this was a full circle moment for you at this point. Yeah. In, I produced, in your career. I fully produced my first show. I fully produced... You know, I hired the actors, directed the show. Did you make the puppets? I did not make the puppets. Um, uh, John Vaughn, who actually was one of the puppet designers at the... um, um, at Das Puppenspiel, he had these puppets, and he trained me in the puppets, and and it was great. He's he he's no longer in that in the industry, but he was truly a a, a brilliant uh, uh, master puppeteer, and uh, I learned a lot from him. Okay, so you saw the puppets, the production of the puppets. You really learned how to inhabit. And tell the story through these puppets when this show was done. What was your next step? Uh, traveled with um, uh, Das Puppenspiel. We had four shows in rep. Um, some of the shows were 
Um, gosh, I'm trying to remember all the shows. Um, we had the story of Jumpy Mouse. Oh, I know the one. Um, uh, pictures at an exhibition. Um, so there were four touring shows, but the one that I really, really connected with was Pictures at an Exhibition, which is based on Mazorsky's work. And this touring show was... Um, was inspired by this one piece of classical music. And we told the, the, the story of the music through these images, through these over-the-top puppet elements. Um, that was really, that solidified when I started traveling as a, as a professional puppeteer with them. That really solidified Oh yeah, if you want to do this, you can do it big. Because the majority of those performances, occasionally we do it in elementary school cafetoriums. It was a, it was an expensive show, so very few schools hired us. But the bulk of what we did with that show was we played with symphonies. So we went to like I think it was Pittsburgh Symphony it was not their full, but one of the smaller ones. And then we'd be on stage with the symphony around us. And we'd be performing with all these professional musicians, these full-time musicians who are making salaries doing what they love. And I was making a salary doing what I love, immersed as, as just a 22, 23-year-old, seeing folks in their 60s still playing violin, still doing what they love. Um, that's really how it came full circle. After that, I went to graduate school and got a degree in puppetry uh, design and production, where I started learning the skill set that I didn't have. This is at one of only three places you can get it at, at the time in the U.S. Um, uh, University of Connecticut, the um, uh, Frank Ballard program, but uh, Bart Rockaburton um, was running it then, and and I learned so much from Frank and, and Bart, and it was at that point that I, I really said, okay, I think I think I've got some skill, and and let's start moving forward. Um, simultaneously, I was also doing prop work because we all, as artists, need multiple streams of income, and I wasn't able to sell puppets that early on, um, so. Uh, that is where I, I met my, my lovely bride um, at a place in upstate New York called Chautauqua Institution. Um, she was the production manager. Chautauqua Institution? Yeah, you know what Chautauqua is? I, I don't, but it sounds, you know, very... Uh... <coughs> Collegiate? Or no? uh, I don't know. No? Maybe institute, maybe, but institution, it, it sounds very bound, you know. Uh, that's an interesting <laughs> That's an interesting way of saying it. Um, so Chautauqua is very, very close to Jamestown, New York. Um, and a Chautauqua, so, so we think about the era of vaudeville. We think about the era of circuses. We think about the era of sideshows. So uh, post-Civil War entertainment for the masses. Um, one of the highbrow entertainment options were these traveling tent shows. And these traveling tent shows would bring academics and ballet and opera and um, speakers and elements of theater. And this was oftentimes, these, these traveling Chautauquas traveled all over North America and they would 
present in these tent shows um, highbrow art. One of these Chautauquas actually landed in western New York, very close to Jamestown, New York, and Erie, Pennsylvania, and Buffalo, New York. Landed there and, and turned into a summer camp for folks who wanted a completely different experience, who wanted a very heady experience. So they have a ballet school there. They have a professional ballet company. Folks from the um, uh, opera singers from the Met actually spend time up there singing over the summer. Um, I saw Bill Clinton speak there. Um, the first time I saw Lyle Lovett was there. There, they, they, you know, they would bring arts and culture um, from different perspectives to this one institution, this one open air Victorian uh, cottage summer camp. And um, when I wasn't working with the puppet company. Um, I was working at Chautauqua, which again is where I met Shelley. And um, and that, that was 28 years ago. Shazam. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Um, so she was my boss, and I was the props oh. master. Oh! Sorry, I had to break the news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's. Me too in reverse. <laughs> um, so. Uh, um, she was production manager, and I was the props guy, and we hit it off, and we had a summer fling, and that summer fling has lasted almost three decades at this point, and um, she she was a lighting designer, um, as well as the production manager, and working with her and the other creatives were another way of understanding how important it is to have a strong team. Um, working with Das Puppenspiel, working in graduate school, there was a lot of independence. Um, we the, our smallest show for the puppet for Das Puppenspiel, we would they'd send out myself and one other puppeteer, and that oh, was yeah. it. Um, with at Chautauqua with at, with the theater company, they'd be bringing in Broadway and off Broadway actors. And and we had a full team of designers and craftspeople, costume designers, and um, uh, I was the props designer and props master and set designers. It it I could see how important it is to have a, a strong team working together to craft something innovative and different. And what was nice is that it was well funded enough that they could do some risky shows. And I was able to build some masks for them. I was able to build some puppets for them. Shadow puppets. We did had a couple of really cool shadow puppet sequences. And uh, and then our last year, Shelley and I are um, unemployed. She had been at Chautauqua for something like six, maybe seven years, and I had been there three or four years. And it's like okay, we gotta we gotta move on to something else. And it's and we are. On our way to being homeless, <laughs> it's like, oh crap! What do we do? We oh, both have wow. we both have graduate degrees in art, in theater. We both have undergraduate degrees in theater, um, and we're sending out the resumes. And it's like, what do we do? What do we do? Um, the last week at Chautauqua, after sending out resumes for half a year over half a year for both of us. Shelley got a call from the Broward Center for the Performing Arts, and I got a call from Florida Grand Opera, less than three days apart. Wow. That's what drew us here. 
So if I became, that wasn't divine intervention, is that I don't know what was. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh? So that's how we we got down here. So Shelley um, uh, came in as technical director for. Um, for Broward Center, and she's now vice president of operations for Broward Center and a whole bunch of other theaters down here. Um, and I was the assistant technical director uh, for the opera, and that um, that included being the on-site technical director for. Uh, the in-school operator, um, and I think our first in-school operator was the medium, and we would travel throughout South Florida and bring opera to high schools in Miami. And uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was a uh, that was a big sell. That was a heavy lift to uh, to have these kids interested in opera. But I think FGO Florida Grand Opera did a really good job of of presenting. Um, a real playful perspective of opera that these kids began to connect to. Yeah, I love that that engagement point and having the ability to connect a younger audience with a staid and storied art form. But for me, you know, to hear that you came down here in a way that it was an extension of what you've already done, you know? Um, and then to go out on a traveling tour of that, you know, was just uh, that that was just an amazing part of your journey. But there's another part. How then did you evolve into connecting with one of my favorite shows, The Lion King? Oh, The Lion King. Yeah, um, so uh, I was very, very fortunate to, close to a decade, travel uh, with The Lion King as one of the touring puppet masters. Um, It it just blew my mind um, every day that I got to to be there as as part of of the performance. Um, So I, um, I was working at Florida Grand Opera. Uh, I, I, I took a corner. I, at that point, I was actually one of the prop masters at Florida Grand Opera. I did part-time prop mastery, part-time company management back and forth for, for FGO. Um, but the CEO at the time, this was in 1998, yeah, 1998, um, came down to the prop shop. And the corner where I was building little puppet shows, and I, I was starting to sell some of the puppets. So, um, working with with different companies down here um, to uh, to create either puppet stages or little puppet shows, and I did some stuff for different festivals. Um, but the CEO came down and he's like, you know what, Jim? There's this new show on Broadway you have to see. And I'm like, oh, well, what is it? And and he said. The Lion King. I said, oh, that kid's movie? Really? I was like, no, 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 no. It's so different. And and you saw and you heard earlier some of my grappling with Disney and me not entirely appreciating what Disney uh, brings to the universe. Um and I'm and I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll be able to sh- to see it someday, but I'm not sure. He, called me up less than a week later. He said, I'm flying you up. 
I got you tickets. This is before they won all the Tonys, all of the Tonys. I'm flying you up, and and um, you have to see the show. So uh, I'm sitting there, roughly sixth, maybe seventh row. Circle of Life kicks in, and I'm bawling as the animals are coming down the aisle, saying, Oh my gosh, this is what puppetry is about. This is that spectacle. This is that ritual. This is that this is that church ritual meets object ritual meets um, everything about puppetry that I love. And the that, connection that I with the people, too. I, w- I went to uh, The Lion King. I lived in New York. And so I had a friend who had a friend who then became a friend who was in uh, one of the original productions mm-hmm. of The Lion King. So, you know, I went to, uh, to had to be third row and backstage and all that. But, you know, if if you haven't been to The Lion King, it's such an experience. It's a visceral experience because it really is th- a, a different level of that connection with the puppets and the audience and, you know, being able to you know, have this kinetic energy between that performance and that ritual that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's unique, but almost what's, transcendent. What's particularly incredible, what um, Julie Taymor, and, and who was the director and lead designer, and Michael Curry, Michael Curry Studios, he designed a lot of the puppets, co-designed a lot of the puppets with Julie. Um, what Julie and Michael did was they extracted some of the most important puppetry that human beings have ever created. So what I what particularly got me so emotional was not just the heightened music and the dance, it was the fact that that Julie is so connected with the universe of puppetry, she understands the importance of that mask that I was talking about before. So you have these Congolese masks that are sitting up above the head of the actor where you see the face of the actor and their emotion. And then up above it, you have this um, almost stoic icon, this manifestation of, of the energy or the mask of that character so she's got she's got all of these um, um, African uh, uh, styled masks as, as part of it then you go into her Indonesian shadow puppetry which we talked about me doing shadow puppets at the at the theater I mean the connection with shadow puppetry and and the experience of, of, of shadow puppetry puts us back to the first puppets that ever existed. Um, the very first puppets were no different from the rock stones, sticks and stones that I was working with. Those were the first puppets that storytellers would use. Then after the sticks and stones, they would uh, uh, also use bones and leather and they would pound out the leather and cut them out intricately and put them on the side of a tent or put them up against uh, a fire that was in the center of a tent and tell stories of people who have died and tell stories of the great mighty gods um, through through these shadows and Julie was making it completely this, this ancient puppet style connected with kids and adults and and 
she just incorporated so many other styles. American puppetry with vaudeville. We talked about the Chautauquas and touring vaudeville. Um, Zazu. Zazu is just a ventriloquist dummy, a modified, re-envisioned ventriloquist dummy, which you would see at the height of vaudeville, um, or if you see Jeff Dunham on stage today. Um, and and even the purest, to me, not the purest, but one of the most sophisticated styles of puppetry, which is Japanese bunraku. And Japanese bunraku is where you actually see the puppeteer and they are manipulating the object in front of oh, them. Oh, yeah. Through yeah, rods. Right, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Timon, the meerkat, who is Pumbaa's sidekick or Pumbaa is his sidekick. Um, that is a three-person bunraku style puppet crushed into just one person. So she, Julia and Michael, re-envisioned this this, uh, character um, (coughs) that a lot of people really loved and brought it to life using this incredibly sophisticated style of puppet theater. (coughs) I fell in love with it. I fell in love with it. Sorry. Yeah. I'm getting emotional, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. It comes on what? Tears, coughs, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So then the next up was... Next up was uh, very soon after that, um, I left my gig at... um at the opera, um, I was still doing some some uh, um, some puppet show. I still had puppet show clients. Uh, I was doing some educational projects. Um, still working with the opera, and then the circus came to town. And Lion King came, came to came to Broward Center, where my lovely bride had moved on up. I think she was a director at that point, and um, I. I Started working backstage in the wardrobe department for Lion King as a local. Met the team, uh, and within a couple of months, I was working in the wardrobe department when it went over to Tampa. And then did that for a couple of months. Then after that, I got the call the middle of the next summer. I think it was probably December December, January, I was working in Tampa. And then uh, early summer, I got a call saying, hey, our puppet, one of our puppet masters left the road, and do you want the gig? And I went up to Charlotte, and it was an incredible ride. I saw the show, not saw, but I experienced the show uh, well over 3,000 times. Wow. Uh, from backstage, occasionally from uh, in front of the stage, but um, never on stage. I'm not a performer uh, for this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was extraordinary. Uh, the amount of respect that I have for Julie just went through the roof. I was aware of, of we studied her in, in graduate school. I had several um, students who were in grad school who had worked on projects uh, for PBS with her, other independent film projects. And, um, and it, I, I was truly amazed at, at the depth of understanding of texture depth of understanding of of how to work a color palette depth of understanding and respect for 
for the ancients who came before us. I mean, it's just such a such a gripping conversation when you are repairing and tr- each of these puppets and rebuilding each of these puppets when you are training actors who have never touched a puppet before in their life how to become a giraffe how to flap the wings of zazu how to breathe life from you as an actor from the center of you as an actor and push that out into the object that's in front of you it it uh, i learned a lot in graduate school i learned a lot from sassy sally but i learned more in that almost decade on the road than any other experience of my life and what else is was great is i also learned about grit and tenacity because i it was tough out there sometimes i miss shelly to death you know, D- Disney was very good to me because they gave me opportunities to go back and forth and actually do some projects at home as well. Um, run a couple of festivals, um, work on a few other pet projects, uh, a couple small film projects that didn't go anywhere. But uh, uh, but I was able to go back there and and uh, live on a road salary, which is which is a which is a nice salary. And get that per diem and send it home and pay off four college degrees while we were at it. So. <laughs> yeah, that's that that's something. And you know, now Disney, in terms of our industry, is such a big part of the industry. It was the biggest box office company last year, over a billion dollars. Disney Plus. The minute they turn the lights on, Disney Plus. 10 million subscribers. I mean, you know, it's, it's a juggernaut. So to be a part of that family, I'm sure is is something else. And what's what's incredible is is that childhood apprehension, that 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 love but fear. That 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 trauma, childhood trauma that so many of us had. Um I thought it's like, ah, it's another it's another Disney trauma experience. It's not. It's 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 about it's, yes, it is about a child losing his dad. Simba lost Mufasa. But it goes so much beyond just that child screaming in the, in the cavern say, in, saying, Dad, and crying on stage. It's about your own rebirth. It's about going through tragedy and figuring out how you're going to come out the other end. And that is truly the beauty of it. Um, it's so reflective in what I'm doing now. It's so reflective in who I was before. Um, one of the biggest influences that I had on my life was um, the fact that my dad passed away when I was 13, 14 years old. And... When I was about 10, he was diagnosed of, of an acute sarcoma, cancer. And he was a quadriplegic by the time I was 11, 12, and then died a couple years later. Um, that parallel, although my dad was not pushed in to a wildebeest uh, stampede by his brother... Um, the parallel is there. That feeling of loss is there. That um, hearing from adults that you're the man of the house and you need to step up and not cry is there. And 
not only creatively but therapeutically Lion King helped me understand more about myself than almost anything else in my career so it was a catharsis completely a painful one as many of them are but but it was an awakening that catharsis was an awakening yeah and it sounds like a, a rebirth as well and yes. it was a way to pull all all of your experiences together exactly so, so that's amazing um but i do know of an experience that for me is because it continues on and was one of the most amazing experiences which is the day of the dead day of the dead florida Your day of the dead event is just brilliant um thank you to all the listeners whether you are from south florida florida anywhere around the country anywhere around the, anywhere around the world you have to come to jim hammond's day of the dead it's it's the community day of the dead. It's it's so many. Well, it is the community. Yeah, yeah it's, but it's, I mean, you can feel Jim Hammond in yeah. that. You know, you go to the that that event, and Jim Hammond's all over that event. Thank you. Uh, it's um, you know, I talked about death. I talked about fear of death. I've talked about Disney. I've talked about Mufasa dying. I talked about my dad dying. Um, I talked about me being an altar boy for funerals. Um. It's not a normal childhood, but it was my childhood, and and Maybe Tim death Burton, was, death Tim was around me. Oh, and Tim childhood. Burton. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was a goth kid before there were goth kids. <laughs> right. You know, um, it. Uh, how did we get there? <laughs> so, um, came off the road around ninety. Uh, I'm sorry, in two thousand eight ish. Um, and 2008-2009 and met up with a bunch of artists in this cool little arts district and, and we started you know brainstorming hey we want to do community events because part of the reason why I came off the road was not only that I missed Shelly terribly I missed our little cottage terribly I missed our puppies terribly but um, I wanted a better sense of community when you are on the road you're kind of in this little insular um, spaceship that you travel to one location and you're still you get a little bit of a connection to local but by and large you're just connected with the other 150 160 people you're traveling with very much like a circus or um, modeling you know, exactly. around the world in the same circles the same people you're in different places but you're still you know with the same people precisely yeah. precisely and i wanted a greater connection so um came off the road found a group of artists and uh we all had a bit of a death theme to it um several of the artists uh were either uh mexican american or latin american with connections with uh day of the dead ritual so we started looking around for a day of the dead festival to connect with to actually say hey we're ready to step up and volunteer for you guys and i wanted to do puppets we had a larue who's a beautiful clay artist does amazing clay work studied in um 
studied clay work in Mexico. Um, uh, Ian, who's uh, a music producer, uh, Chuck, uh, who's a musician and printmaker. Uh, Ian's also a designer. So a, a bunch of us, we were the core group of four folks. And then we started bringing in all these other artists to say, all right, you know what? There is no Day of the Dead in South Florida. Let's create one. So crazy artist. We write our first little grant. It was a $2,000 grant from Broward County. And we got our little $2,000 grant to start doing free community workshops to build puppets for the very first Florida Day of the Dead celebration parade, skeleton processional. And that first time we had less than 700 people and we're now 10 years later and we had tens of thousands of people at the event wow and um it kind of shocks me when i just i don't know why i'm at the helm of this um yeah i'm the puppet guy yeah i'm the guy who you know deals with logistics and production my whole production background is very very helpful with this um but it's it's strange when i'm i'm sitting in the room with the with mexican government officials and consul general of mexico and all of these folks from the mexican american community who are like this is the festival we've needed down here didn't you just get a proclamation or yeah, some yeah we've gotten a bunch of proclamations we've, we the city's been great with us the county's been great with us with proclamations um the city of fort lauderdale and and broward county mexico uh, uh, Mexico? Yeah, did you get something I from the Mexican a, consulate or something? Like that? Uh, we we helped get them the key to the city of Fort Lauderdale. Ah, right. So, yeah. So, um, but no, they, they've been a partner for probably the Mexican government and, and um, Consul General of Mexico in South Florida. They have been uh, partners for probably about six years at this point. So we are officially part of their programming. And that, that I mean, but the, the accolades are, are, I mean, the partnership is crazy, but the accolades are like crazy too. Like um, TV show uh, um, on ABC Digital named us one of the top three in the U.S. Um, uh, USA Today named us one of the top ten in North America. In North America, you know, and and it's just some kid who has delusions of grandeur to throw a big party to respect those who have died, so that I can create an ofrenda to my dad who died when I was a kid. So any kid or parent or anyone can remember in the best possible way and that's really what the festival is about memory for the dead party for the living yeah this is certainly um you know world-class thank you event i've lived not all over the world but you know i've lived in europe other than africa i've been all over this country i've been to many places around the world and you know i know a kick-ass event thank you when I feel it, not just see it, but when I feel it, when I feel it and I see it. So there are a lot of other projects that you have done 
and that you've embarked on, you have your own production company. So yeah, we have we have a production company. Um, we're uh, like I had talked about early on the the big dream was always to create um eventually to create content um we've worked on some commercial stuff we i was the spokes puppet for allegiant airlines for a while so anyone who saw that those talking wallet commercials um uh um we're gonna have to put one of those on the website perfect perfect uh and 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 i'll give you the reel so you can take a look at some of those too um i apologize for the baggage fees i'm not responsible for that (laughs) (laughs) but um but yeah we've we've done regional commercials we've done a couple of video uh, music videos um uh little um pilots for a few different companies some educational uh videos as well um but the new directive right now is not only continuing with day of the dead but also working on some other uh um festivals so we are now bringing out like giant saint patrick puppets to saint patrick's day festivals down here um there's um a Sistrunk Festival that happens uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And Dr. Sistrunk was the first African-American physician in Broward County. Um, and uh, Sistrunk Boulevard is one of the main boulevards in, in Fort Lauderdale. And they host a festival. Um, this year it's on, I think, February 22nd. And we've built puppets for the Sistrunk Festival. And we started building puppets for the Pride Festival. And, and and uh, we had some Mardi Gras pop-up festivals as well. So that's one arm of what we do. So we we work on those individual festivals as creative consultants and or just puppeteers with our pop-up experiences. Um, the other thing is education. So we do educational programming, um, workshops, hands-on workshops, make it, take it for um, kids anywhere from second grade and up. But we also have started doing um, we also started doing some kind of corporate uh, um, workshops as well, uh, which not only introduces uh, business leaders to uh, puppetry, but really what we're doing is to help them think creatively in talking to different people so we each of these business we've done multiple workshops um, for chambers of commerce and leadership organizations where each of the suits end up walking away with a puppet at the end of it sometimes oh, it's cool. sometimes it's uh, depending on the project sometimes they have to build self-portraits of themselves as puppets sometimes they walk away with a pre-created puppet where they learn the skills of actually breathing life into them and uh, through learning those individual skills they then it helps hopefully focus them on the most important Elements of communication when they're dealing with challenging communication circumstances. So that's the education wing. Um, but but the passion projects, the projects that I really want, really am focusing 2020 vision on. 2020, uh, 2020, 2020, 2020, 
um, Yarrow and Amy Carlson, uh, we developed a, a project that I won't go too into, but it's basically on women's history um, from a girl's point of view. And she goes uh, uh, back in time and meets these famous women in history when they were her age rather than when they were adults. Oh, that's great. So we've got our first 10 episodes written. We had a, a, a some seed funding from a, an angel investor on the front end. We've got that project. Um, there's a great animation studio, um, Mana Animation, that uh, we're collaborating with on a couple of projects, and uh, along with a, a few other projects that I can't get too deep into. Um, and then, and then there's this cat. Kevin, who uh, <laughs> he and I have been doing some brainstorming as well about uh, maybe reinventing a Sesame Street for for twenty twenty kids. Yeah, a Miami's version of Sesame Street. Miami's version of Sesame Street. Um, there is something that I mentioned. There is someone, and I would be remiss not to bring this person up. We've talked about a lot of the greats: Mister Rogers, Captain Kangaroo, Julie Taymor. Jim Henson. Jim Henson. I'm sure Jim Henson served as an inspiration for you. 100%. Absolutely. So, um, we currently as creatives um, live in such a segmented uh, media landscape. You know, we are just broken up into small little groups. So um, you've got, from a kid's entertainment standpoint, you've got the zero to one and a halfs. <laughs> you're, 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 you're literally programming for the first, uh, uh, the, the first year and a half of a child's life, whether it be through audio, whether it be through whatever. I grew up in a time where I, at 12, 13 years old, was still watching Sesame Street. I, at 17 years old, was still watching VHS tapes of The Muppet Show because The Muppet Show was off the air. Um, These shows and Jim Henson's influence um, to the puppet arena was earth-shattering. Before Jim Henson, most puppet shows, puppet television shows, were really just tapings of live performances. Yes, Kukla, Fran, and Ollie was built for television, but you still had the puppet stage. Um, Most of the puppet shows of that era, pre-Henson, did not take into... Uh, take into account the frame of the television, the frame of the camera. Quite often, there was a, it was a frame within a frame, almost always. And whether it be a marionette, whether it be a hand puppet, what, whatever the style was, that was typically the way it was done. Um, Jim Henson was a brilliant designer. Jim Henson was a brilliant artist who connected with puppetry as his art form and used the television camera to its benefit rather than ignore the camera. And he would play with puppets coming in and out of the in and out of the frame. Puppeteers weren't doing that. They were coming in and out of the proscenium frame rather than the frame of the camera. Um, 
his use of music, his use of 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 direct, you know, direct conversation with the camera. These are innovations that that Jim Henson and all of his creative artists around him um, they not only discovered but they understood how to connect with audiences in a very different way. I love Captain Kangaroo, but Captain Kangaroo still had the playboard, very similar to a lot of the Punch and Judy style. Um, I love Mr. Rogers, but Mr. Rogers, the puppets were in either a tree or they were in the castle. You still had the staging that was classic puppet staging, and he broke that. So um, I was starting to go down, down the line of conversation about I grew up in that era when the kids and adults would be watching Sesame Street where kids and adults would be watching The Muppet Show. Um, And those influences on me are really ultimately my big dream, to create some kind of media content. And I know in live entertainment I've absolutely done that. But in developing media content that connects using the medium but also the way Jim Henson did but also connecting in such an emotional way so think about Rainbow Connection Rainbow Connection Lovers, the Dreamers and Me Um, that is that somewhere over the rainbow moment that is that what's on the other side that is that we're here but someday we won't be here it still connects with the heartstrings in such a delicate manner while still totally embracing what television puppetry and film puppetry is about. But he still found the storytelling that was so authentic and delicate. I mean, his company does other things, though, other than The Muppets and Sesame Street. They do films? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I am not an expert on Jim Henson uh, uh, company post Jim Henson. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they are very, very, uh, they have their fingers in many, many different projects. You and know, they have a commercial division. They've got an a- animation division. What I find interesting is, um, I'm not remembering the name of the show, but um, uh, there is uh, like an undersea show that's on PBS, uh, like an underwater with talking fish. And um, a lot of the animation that Henson is doing, uh, the Henson company is doing, is reflective of what uh, Jim and his, I think his son Brian, uh, were working on things called Waldos. And what a Waldo was, um, it was a was a mechanism, or is a mechanism, it's not called a Waldo anymore, it's a mechanism where a puppeteer can literally, in real time, manipulate their hand to bring a puppet to life, and then it goes into the computer, 
and translates and animates an animated character. So a lot of the technology, when we are like looking into our camera and we are animating a, uh, when we are actually through our facial features animating um, a character, you know, a talking uh, uh, cartoon penguin or whatever it may be, that the 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 predecessor the baseline for that was Jim Henson with motion capture um, with these Waldos and what's great is they're still using similar technology to animate a lot of their animated characters like this one show that I'm not remembering the name of but uh, yeah but it's a it's a playful show on PBS and animatronics and you know the list goes on and on yeah, yeah. Abs- absolutely absolutely yeah. and the reason why I bring that up is, you know, it seems like you're pushing into other areas and really doing an exploratory, a rebirth. Uh, yeah. An evolution. Yeah, there, there, there is, there is definitely an, an evolution. An evolution. I think, I think, um, the, the word of the day is authentic. So we as artists are constantly um, trying to connect with with the purest voice that we have that does not have an influence from the outside. And and you're 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 jumping up and down right now. You you are looking for a pure a pure Kevin Sharpley voice. I am looking for a pure Jim Hammond voice. And we today are, because of the segmentation of of media, we are able to find our community and not have to just create stuff that can be on one of three channels. We can find our audience and it can be very, very pure, uncut us. And if we can define that pure, uncut us, and get it out there, it's going to be the best content we'll ever create. I love it. So that's what that's what this whole process is. You know, there are a lot of people who are 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 connecting with. I don't want to say this. There's a movement that's happening. There's a movement of being your purest self that is happening. I think about I think about my brother-in-law, uh, John, and he was this high-powered COO for a financial services company out of um, uh, out of Atlanta, dealing with numbers that would boggle my that boggle my mind would boggle almost anyone's mind, and and he's incredibly brilliant human being um moving on up in in so many arenas political arenas and he decided to just about give it all up to be a yoga instructor in las vegas this is a man who was uh the cpa exam in new york he was number one 
in the entire state of New York when he took it the very first time. He was the only one in the top 20 who went to a state school. He was the only person in the top 100 who paid 100% of his own way through college. And he had those moments of authenticity and that connection, but he needed something more. So now he's one of the top yoga instructors and he has a following in, in, in a small town outside of Vegas. And he's more connected with himself and he's more connected with community than I think he ever was, you know, firing people and moving around millions of dollars. So he is um, he is my example of, you know, try to find who you really are, try to identify who you really are and be honest, because that mask that you wore when you were on the runway and that mask that I wore when I was Sassy Sally was part of both of us, but it wasn't a pure authentic us. And as we are constantly evolving, we hopefully get closer and closer to an authentic real us. Boom! <laughs> that has been just an incredible, incredible interview. One of the best I've had. And actually, for me, it was cathartic. So Why is that, Kevin? <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Your journey is uh, certainly uh, one to behold. So uh, this is Screen Heat Miami with Jim Hammond. Wonderful, wonderful. Interview and, and Kevin Sharpley. And uh, thank you very much, sir. Absolutely. Thanks. I'm looking forward to our next project together. <laughs> very soon. And we're back in. Jim Hammond gave it. That was a journey. Well done, as usual. Thank you, sir. Great, great interview. We're good together. We're good apart. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> it's all say. good. It's all good. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So one thing that I had wanted to mention before we moved in was someone who we saw actually last year at the Miami Film Festival. Miami Film Festival has an award called the Night Heroes. Mm -hmm. And it celebrates people of note in the industry. Right. And more especially, you know, people that have some connection to Miami in one way or the other. Right. Some kind of tie to the local community. Barry Jenkins. He was there last year as the, the director of Oscar-winning director of Moonlight. Was one of the night heroes last year. Right. His girlfriend is Lulu Wang. That's right. And you probably have seen some of that if you follow the awards uh, season this year of them hanging out at the various events. Uh, you know, most of the time this year, Barry holding the purse for <laughs> the talented Miss Wang, who. Uh, uh, who did a phenomenal job again with The Farewell, one of my favorite movies last year, for sure. Yeah, Power Couple. Yes. So uh, I think we saw her last year. I think she at made the an Miami Film appearance. Festival. And then uh, I know later on in the year they did do the Florida premiere of Farewell uh, at the Tower. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, something that Jay put together, yeah. which is very cool. Uh, so she has been around the town and the festival, and now she's coming back in another official capacity. She's going to be a night hero. She'll be a night hero. And, and the cool thing is not just an award, it's a whole event where you can sit down and, and hear. It's like a discussion yeah. with these filmmakers. Uh, I believe Ari Aster, as well as involved, who directed the hit Midsummer for A24. 
for as well last summer, uh, which I did see. It's a really cool movie. Trippy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trippy is cool. But, uh, you know, that's the kind of eccentric fare, I guess, that A24 is known for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be a, a, a three of those interesting speakers that'll be. So you can check that out on the Miami Film Festival website and you can buy tickets for it. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm excited to hear what she has to say, yeah. uh, especially coming off of that Spirit Award win. Mm hmm. Well deserved spirit award win. Oh yeah, yeah, that that was that was beautiful. I'm glad that she got that uh, that nod. You know, in addition to uncut gems, both unfortunately were snubbed for the Oscars this year, but they did do very well in the Indie Spirit Awards, yeah, as well as other awards. But yeah, yeah. So snubs. It looks like the Ber- Berlin Film Festival. This is not a snub, but the coronavirus. Yeah. The coronavirus is affecting. Many different industries, of course, affecting many people. I have a cousin that still is stuck over there in yeah. China. Yeah. It's affecting the industry in big, big ways. There was an article that came out that spoke on the effect at the Berlin Film Festival. And that effect is 60 plus cancellations. Wow. To date from Chinese delegates. 60 plus cancellations that's a lot and you know it's really a tragedy for for folks in China folks that are in China Uh, uh, but yeah hopefully this is something that can be contained because it does have a wide reaching effect on on the whole global economy on everything yeah because China is one of the biggest film economies in the world oh yeah yeah so to have uh, to lose that presence at such a big European film market is a big deal yeah. Yeah. And Berlin is one of the biggest festivals in it's the world as well. Top yeah. 10. Yeah, yeah. So you got the Berlin Berlinale and you got the European Film Market. And yeah. so they they happen sort of side by side there. And uh yeah, it is unfortunate. So I'm I'm really hoping and praying for that country that they can figure that out and, you know, hopefully start to control that that crazy crazy virus. Yeah. Yeah. So, moving on, we have another insidious Mm. situation. Oof, this is a terrible one, but it's definitely making headlines and it's, you know, hopefully this will get resolved soon, but uh, yeah, Uh, you know, Gail King, she, uh, yeah, she did an interview recently and uh, unfortunately, uh, CBS played a clip uh, specifically asking uh, about the, uh, the Kobe Bryant uh, incident, uh, you know, where he was accused of rape and uh, the public did not take kindly to the questioning. Uh, And I think also the way that unfortunately CBS framed it in that little clip that they promoted the interview with uh, did not help at all. Uh, Yeah. So and then obviously as social media goes, you know, just a pile on. It's not even the news cycle is uh, just an hour. Terrible. At best. Yeah. 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 But it's been a pile on and, you know, and some celebrities have gotten involved. Snoop Dogg had some unkind things to say about Gail King. That was harsh. That was harsh. Yeah. Yeah. Even for someone as gangster as Snoop, <laughs> that was harsh. He went straight gangster on that <laughs> he boy. He definitely did. Yeah. 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 So uh, he did apologize. He walked back. He did walk a it bit. back after saying, you know, some pretty pretty mean things about Gail. Uh, he did walk it back, and now he's he's asking for a uh, uh, obviously a public mea culpa, but also a private reunion with Gail. So I guess he can further explain his sentiments, as you know, he put in his Instagram. Uh, his mama told him recently, two wrongs don't make a right." <laughs> 
coming from the Snoop Mama. <laughs> Two wrongs Dang. don't make a right. Don't make a right. That is a old black moniker. Mm, mm, so mm, mm, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. yeah, so 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 yeah, you know, obviously with these things, obviously look whether or not that was an appropriate question to ask at this particular time, uh, you know, but I still think that there's so much room in this industry and in social media for people just to take a step back and not just jump all over something without, first of all, understanding all the facts, number one, and number two, just kind of seeing that, you know, we're all humans, everybody can make a mistake, but, you know, this whole idea of instant, uh, uh, instant ramifications of cancel culture you know it's just i think it's getting out of hand yeah we talk about the pendulum and how it swings one way and swings the other yeah there is now i think a moment where that pendulum is going to swing a little bit you know it's it's, closer to center and i think it's obviously the main reason why for example the oscars hasn't had a host in two years yeah you know to their detriment i think to their detriment so i think that at some point you know we need to find a balance obviously you know what what has changed dramatically with so social media is that you know there's no more control you know now you're this is sort of like just a frenzy everyone has access everyone can frenzy instantly communicate and these are not professional media people this (laughs) is armchair critics armchair quarterbacks and kickers or whatever and everybody has you know an opinion and it's all opinion and and when things build upon that you know uh it can have detrimental effects on people's lives and their careers i mean gail received death threats you know legitimate threats on her life and you know so that's an unfortunate thing you know for something that you know uh that maybe you know she never intended yeah, and yeah. I think, you know, on you know, on her end, if you are a journalist, you know, if you look to push all sides. Right. Because that's what journalists do. Right. Sometimes you go into areas that Right. You know there's gonna be controversy. Right. Yeah. 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 So And you, I, I don't think that she pushed too hard on this. You no. know, she she did broach it a bit. Right. Maybe it was too soon, you know, but the backlash, I think, was not necessarily reciprocal to when you when you know, when you pull out and you see it in context. Right. You know, which, you know, that there was no ability to do that because CBS just put out that one clip. Right. But when you pull out and you see it in context, you know, maybe if this would have come out in a different frame. Right. So, yeah, hopefully this is a. Uh, a lesson learned for CBS, for journalists, for, you know, just whole social media culture that we can all maybe learn something from it. Yeah. I think that's the uh, the end goal here, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> Do you think there were any lessons learned when Birds of Prey came out? Yeah. First of all, don't call it Birds of Prey. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. Lesson number one. They changed the name. There's a reason why they called Joker Joker and not, <laughs> you know, Funny Man. <laughs> Yeah. Psychotic funny man or whatever. Um, that you know. that could have been. I haven't seen the movie, so I, I don't know. You know, if quality wise, the yeah. quality of it. But it's a Harley Quinn movie. You have a brand. You got to promote the brand. Yeah, because you know nowadays, especially because there's so much content, so many distractions out there, you need that instant rec- recognition. So, yeah. and I don't think there's not been many things that I've seen Margot Robbie in that I've not liked. I really like her as an actress. She's, she's a great actor. She's yeah. Tremendous. Yeah. You know, I love her actor. Yeah. Once Upon a Time was brilliant. Obviously, she was in Bombshell as well. Yeah. Um, she, she won an Oscar, you know. So she's and that it. movie was tremendous as yeah. well. So, but um, 
you know, I'm going to have to see Birds of Prey to speak on it myself in terms Maybe. of the, the film. Yes. But it did not open up to big numbers. Stay tuned, folks. A future Kevin review on a film that that did so well. And we will decide once you see it, <laughs> whether it was because of the film itself or literally it was just a faux pas on the title. Yeah. I, I did see uh, Terminator finally, you know, the, the last Terminator. And, uh, you know, that was not an well, issue right <laughs> with the titling no no that you know. was clear <laughs> it was uh that was a, a that little was, wonky right. scripting yeah it, yeah it was a little wonky starts with the script and then it could have worked actually yeah know? it could it could have worked you know but that that's a conversation for another time oh, yeah. so i want to see birds of prey and, and see you know exactly what the film does right in terms of the effect on me but uh but in general i know that they were looking for birds of prey to do tremendous numbers yeah there were a lot of hopes for that film uh because of the cast because of you know obviously the the relation to the uh uh you know to the dc universe and uh just didn't live up to the hype dc was on a run they were i mean joker i mean obviously they they could weather the storm (laughs) Uh, yeah, but uh, but yeah, I think they were expecting a lot more, and, and I hope that's not the last we see of Harley Quinn. You know, even if she's part of the ensemble again, or you know, maybe there's a future Joker movie where we can bring those two together. It'd be kind of fun. Yeah, and I have heard. Speaking of Joker, there's been a meme going around, and that meme is with Heath Ledger mm. and with Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, and this is an Oscar. He's an Oscar-winning actor, actually, Jared Leto. Right, that's true. He did win for um, uh, for, for that uh, that Matthew McConaughey movie as well. That was uh, yeah. a few years ago. Yeah, uh, on, and Matthew did win that. Dallas Buyers Club. Dallas Buyers Club. It's a great little indie film, uh, made on a shoestring budget, yeah. and uh, did very well. Jared Le- Jared Leto's. I love him. Great performance. Yeah, a great, yeah. great, great Again, actor. Very talented actor. Uh, but just yeah, people didn't respond. Kind of sandwiched in between two Oscar winners. That's tough. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, a tough one. Yeah, I think he was hoping for more. Uh, critical praise for his Joker didn't I think he went too full crazy yes you can't go full (laughs) you can't go full crazy you can't go full crazy (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, he didn't walk that line enough no 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 but but yeah this is uh, it's an interesting world right now and just to dive briefly back into the streaming wars there is another contender taking a slightly different angle uh the industry titan Jeffrey Katzenberg has raised quite a bit of money for his new over digital billion platform. dollars. A billion dollars. In over C- a billion. Over. A billion plus. Uh, and obviously you could see part of that being spent at the <laughs> Super Bowl and at uh, the recent Oscars, but huge marketing advertising campaign for Quibi. Quibi. Short form content, 10 minutes or under. Yeah. Maybe we can get the market short on there. What do you think? I hope so. Yeah, it's definitely it's way more than good enough. So let's see if let's but see if we can get. This I was right. actually going to think. I mean, because obviously uh, it hasn't come out yet, and we'll go over some of the the original shows. But uh, if they're going to embrace, you know, the sort of short film world, and maybe have a section dedicated to ten minute shorts, straight embrace it. I think you should. Yeah, but uh, so Quibi mm. has a few offerings. But uh, one of the big offerings is so yeah. There's uh, there's the female version of Swimming with Sharks. I know is one of the shows uh, that will be offered up, uh, which is going to be an interesting take on the uh, on the Hollywood uh, sort of industry inside fighting and uh, the way that's set up. So that's going to be that's going to be an interesting one. 
And I know that uh, Spielberg also has a show as well uh, that, interestingly enough, they're saying you can only you can only stream at night. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. Yeah. You got to read about that. That is something. So we know that that's going to be adult fare. I wonder how they're going to pull that off. That's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, obviously it has to be geolocated because what's nighttime in Miami is different time than L.A. and obviously Europe, Asia. So how are they going to pull that off? I don't know. Well, I guess we'll find out. You're going to have to download Quibi and find out. Yeah, we're going to have to do that. Mm. So there is something else that I wanted to talk about. And this this is, you know, about the explosion in the content creation industry. Skydance got a $275 million infusion from Redbird Capital. Wow. That's Their valuation is $2.3 billion. That's a big number. Yeah. <sighs> About half what Disney played for Lucasfilm. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it yeah. is uh, still a big number. But yeah, but these numbers are so common now. Yeah, now yeah, we talk about the industry in terms of millions and billions. It's insane. It's in it's billions. It's you know, this billions. industry is in billions. So I remember when you know Lucas Disney bought Lucas Films. Yeah, everyone was like billion Four. with a B with a B. These billion dollar deals are going down like it's just insane. The numbers are insane. It's night and day. Well, let's see what so. Skydance does with their their new infusion of capital. Let's see what they do. Yeah. With $2.3 billion, you better be doing some big things. Big, big things. Big B. (laughs) Big B pants. (laughs) Yeah. The last thing I wanted to talk about, and this is in the music, and we are going to move into the music side of things. Sure. uh, Moving forward. So listeners uh, certainly uh, look forward to that. But Rage Against the Machine. Mm -hmm. Back together again. Headlining Coachella. Wow. So they're coming back strong. Big comeback. Big comeback. But I heard their first song, Out of the Gate. And? Amazing. Yeah. Back to true form. De La Rocca. Whoa. Throwing it down. Marillo. Oof. If you have not heard their first song out of the gate you guys have to hear this so yeah definitely they're coming out strong and I think that they're going to be doing big big things and big numbers yeah talk about 90s nostalgia wave right it's here yeah the 90s are back they've they're back (laughs) and now I think that they've turned this into a whole nother era wow so that's exciting well I'm I'm going to tune into that song hopefully Screen Heat Miami will be on the ground at Coachella Coachella we're calling you yeah, we're calling you. Tune in to Coachella. Tune in to Screen Heat Miami. Screen Heat Miami because at we're Coachella. Going to keep bringing it hard. Just like we're going to keep raging. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that we got to end it there. Break there. the microphone on yes, that one. Yes, sir. So this is Screen Heat Miami. I am JL Martinez with Kevin Sharpley. And we will be back with another hot and fresh interview next week. Boom. Dolly.